Now, you've heard the saying that if you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans, because he laughs at them. This morning's scripture will teach us that if you want to see Jesus rejoice, give him a report of the work that you're doing to advance his kingdom. Now, our text this morning is the only place in scripture where you will ever see Jesus doing what he does in this text. Luke chapter 10, verses 21 through 24. In that same hour, that would be the hour within which the 72 apostles who had been sent out came back and were giving him a report of what they had seen on the mission field. So in that same hour, he, meaning Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then, turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus may have been a man of sorrows, a man of sorrows. I want to say to us that there is a particular profile that we have built of Jesus over the years that is not entirely accurate. You want to know what that is? There's a particular profile that we, make, that we have made of Jesus over the years that is not entirely accurate. You and I make the mistake of seeing Jesus only as a man of sorrows. Now, thanks to an entire chapter in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 53 to be exact, that described the unimaginable suffering that the Son of God would have to endure in his effort to save the world. He would be a man of sorrows that was acquainted with all kinds of grief. Now, there's a, there's a hymn that we usually sing at Good Friday, and I've asked uh, Sarah if she'd be kind enough to come back and play that for us. I'm going to ask us all to stand again and sing this hymn together. We sing it usually on Good Friday. It is a hymn that recounts the sorrows that Jesus went through. I want us to sing that while we pay particular attention to the sorrow of Jesus. It's called Man of Sorrows, What a Name. Would you please stand with me? And it's a very easy tune. It's not a very popular tune, but it should be very easy to pick up and for us to sing together.
seated. So we are all very familiar with the sorrow of Jesus. We see him at the grave of a friend, Lazarus, weeping that he had died. We see him on a Jerusalem hill weeping over the city because he could feel at that time, he could feel their rejection and he knew that their um, destruction was near. We hear the description of his suffering in Gethsemane's garden. The book of Hebrews tells us that in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. We hear his sad cry from the cross, the saddest words he ever uttered. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're all familiar with the sorrow of Jesus. We've seen the rejection, we've seen the hostility, the cruelty, the crucifixion that he endured. In the words of John MacArthur, I quote him, he had a cosmic kind of sorrow, a profound kind of sadness, related not only to what he saw in the world, but what he knew was the reality of an eternity without God. That was the sentence of all those who rejected his gospel. He deserved only to be loved. He deserved only to be honored. He deserved only to be obeyed. He deserved only to be glorified. And yet he received just the opposite. He was a man of profound cosmic sorrow. Now, all of that sorrow of the man of sorrows was that of an innocent man who was trying to save the guilty from death, from sin, from hell. But profiling Jesus only as a man of sorrows is incorrect theology. He was also a man of rejoicing. That's our second point. He was a man of rejoicing. We are much less familiar with the rejoicing of Jesus because not too often in Scripture do we see him do that except in the passage that we just read. But I so want us this morning to focus on the joy of Jesus, the rejoicing of Jesus. My prayer is that this particular point would minister to you as much as it did me this week. Luke tells us in that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. You will find that nowhere else in Scripture but here. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. The fact that Jesus could rejoice in spite of everything that he went through is remarkable. Yes, he was a man of sorrows, but his sorrows did not define him. He rejoiced in spite of them. Now his 12 disciples had gone out and they had spread the gospel to all that would listen. They had manifested the power of Jesus through the gospel that they preached and we're told that signs and wonders and miracles happened as a result of the gospel. 
the 72 that Jesus sent out after them, they went out doing the very same thing and they came back. They came back with a report of how their eyes had seen the power of Jesus. As he set people free from the kingdom of darkness. This power healed those who were sick. It freed demon-possessed people. And Jesus responds to all of that as they're telling him this. Jesus' response is very telling. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Another translation says, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. Now here's where I really had to pull out my Greek lexicon to find out exactly. Because you see, we hear the word rejoice and our English is so limited that, you know, you hear the word rejoice and you only have that word. But the Greek gives you several definitions and several words that could be used. And so the word that is used for rejoice can be translated as he was jubilant. He overflowed with joy. He was overjoyed or he was full of exaltation. One commentator calls it, quote, eschatological jubilation. All of that means is that he was exceedingly joyful. He rejoiced. He rejoiced as when the hope that you have for something to happen finally materializes. The goal that you had set for yourself, you finally accomplish it. Jesus rejoiced greatly because his father's plan was finally bearing fruit. The 12 disciples and the 72 apostles, they had returned from the fields to which they were sent. They returned reporting of miracles that were happening as a result of the gospel. The kingdom of God was expanding. Satan's kingdom was being depleted. Names were being written in heaven. Names of lives that had been transformed were written in heaven. And Jesus could not have been more jubilant. Now there's something fascinating about Jesus' rejoicing. He rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. What that means is that his rejoicing was assisted or enabled by the Holy Spirit. His rejoicing was something that the Holy Spirit orchestrated within him. Now, I want you to pay attention to this remarkable illustration of the Trinity that we find in the text that we just read. So, we will read it again, and I don't know whether... Um, let me look back there and see whether they captured it. Maybe they don't. Maybe they hadn't. But I will, in fact, emphasize this for you. I have it here in bold letters. Because as we read this, you're going to see the Trinity reflected in this passage. In that same hour, he, meaning Jesus, who was with the uh, apostles at the time, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, who the, and, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And so I have a slide here, which 
you will be able to follow. First, I want you to see the Father, who is the first person of the Godhead. He is the Lord of heaven and earth, as Luke tells us. He is the sovereign God who is exalted above all. He has power and dominion over all persons and things and events, but the Father is not the Son. He is the Father. And then we see the Son, who is the second person of the Godhead, or, or God incarnate, as we sometimes say, God who would come in the flesh. As the image of the invisible God, he showed us who God was like, but he's not the Father. He's the Son. And then we see the Holy Spirit, who is the third person of the Godhead. He is enabling the Son to rejoice. The rejoicing that, that Jesus is doing is happening because the Holy Spirit orchestrated it within him and enabled him to rejoice. But the Holy Spirit is neither the Son, nor is he the Father. He is the Holy Spirit. And so in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, what we see is an unbreakable I'm sorry, an unbreakable circle of loving relationship. Notice that the Son delights in the Father and he prays to him. He gives thanks to him. And then we see that the Father delights in the Son and he defers to him. And then we see that the Spirit delights in the Son and fills him with joy so that the Son is able to rejoice. I want us to notice three things that made Jesus rejoice in the Holy Spirit. Reason number one, he rejoiced because his Father's gracious will was being carried out according to plan. What God had determined to happen in terms of the redemption of the world, it was happening according to plan. And so Jesus says as he rejoices, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. God's will was being done. And as Jesus looked at that and saw that the will of the Father was being done here on earth, he rejoiced. God's gracious will was being done. Sinful people were being saved. Sick people were being healed. Oppressed people were being set free. Satan's kingdom was finally being invaded. God's will was being accomplished on earth. Now keep in mind the prayer that Jesus had earlier prayed and taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so that prayer was already being answered, and Jesus rejoiced because of that. Reason number two, Jesus rejoiced because he felt secure in the Father's love for him and in his love for the Father. Love is something that makes you secure. If your husband loves you, and loves you well, and loves you faithfully, you feel secure in that. 
and vice versa if a wife loves her husband. Her husband feels secure in that. Jesus felt secure in the Father's love for him and in his love for the Father. And so he says this, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son would reveal him. Now in these verses, Jesus discloses his position in the love triangle, if you will, or in the circle of love, however you want to define it. The Father knows him. He knows the Father. And the Spirit assists him in revealing the Father to all those who would listen. That's amazing. God loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Spirit helps the Son to reveal the Father to all those who would listen. Jesus felt secure in that. Reason number three. Jesus rejoices when anyone comes to the Father through the Son. That's where we come in. Jesus rejoiced over us. The preaching of the gospel was happening. People were getting saved. People were getting healed. People were getting delivered from the kingdom of darkness. Whenever the preaching of the gospel happens, it is an attack on the kingdom of Satan. That is what Jesus meant when a couple of Sundays ago we dealt with the verse that says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Because through the preaching of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Spirit was helping the Son to reveal the Father to people, and people were coming to know both the Son and the Father. That includes us, because we too have come into this same loving relationship with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. And we find security in that love. Our third point is this, that Jesus gives us an in to some privileged information. Then turning to the disciples, Jesus said privately, Blessed are those, I'm sorry, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Now, privileged information is information that is shared with you privately. Information that is off limits to everyone else. Private information. Whatever God shares with you privately is privileged information. Now that God chooses to speak to us is remarkable. That God would choose to to speak to us privately is even more remarkable. Does God ever speak to you? Does he speak to you things that no one else knows about? That is privileged information. And so Jesus turned to his disciples and he said to them privately. Nobody else could hear. This was privileged information. He says to them, blessed are your eyes for seeing what you see. Because you see prophets and kings 
of the past. They longed to be able to see what you are seeing now, but they couldn't see it. They longed to hear what you are now hearing, but they were kept from hearing that. That is privilege. That has been reserved just for you. And so what were these 70 disciples able to see and hear that prophets and kings before them were not allowed to see or hear? If you remember with me that Abraham, who was a man of God, he had a son that was born to him when he was 100 years old. He got to see the son. He had waited a long time for him. He finally got to see him. And he heard a promise from God that from this son would come offspring that would be too numerous to count. As numerous as the stars of heaven. But he didn't see what the disciples and apostles were now seeing. Jacob wrestled with God. And who wrestles with God and win? And we're told that during this wrestling match, Jacob was winning. Now, how do you fight against God and win unless you have supernatural strength? Jacob was in this match with God, and he was winning. And what God had to do was to dis disable Jacob to kind of make his, his hip come out of socket. And that's how the wrestling match ended. That was a phenomenal thing. Jacob enjoyed God's blessing, but he did not get to see the things that the disciples were now seeing. Moses saw glimpses of God's power as God delivered the children of Israel from Egypt. Well, before that, there were plagues that devastated the country. Moses saw God lead, open up the Red Sea, divide it into, into two so that the children of Israel could walk through on dry ground. God provided um, rivers in the wilderness, manna from heaven. He saw great things. And yet, Moses didn't see what the disciples were now seeing. Elijah saw God physically raise people from the dead. Elijah saw God send fire from heaven to consume a sacrifice that had been doused with several barrels of water. How do you get, how do you get fire to actually light an altar upon which seven barrels of water had been poured? He saw that. So many miracles, and yet he didn't see what the disciples were now seeing. And Daniel saw God deliver him from the mouths of lions. And yet he didn't see what the children of, what the disciples were now seeing. I'm sorry. So then I ask you, what were they now seeing? And what are we now seeing? We now see and hear reports of millions across the world who are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We now see men and women who are being delivered from the grasp of demonic activity and from Satan. We now see people who are being physically healed of sicknesses. We now see and hear of sparks of revival that are happening across college campuses not only here in America, but even throughout the world. All of this, all of this is pointing to the fact that the Father's gracious will is being done on earth. And that should fill us with joy. That should make us rejoice as it made Jesus rejoice. 
The bottom line of our message this morning is that if you want to see Jesus rejoice, tell him of the work that you are doing to advance his kingdom. I share three points with you real quickly, and then we close and prepare ourselves for communion. I want to challenge you this morning to bring your sorrows to the man of sorrows. Bring your sorrows to the man of sorrows. Now, we all know that sorrow is an existential reality. All of us have some measure of sadness or sorrow or grief in our own lives. I don't need to enumerate. You don't need to enumerate. You don't tell, need to tell me what they are. I don't need to tell you what mine are. We all have sorrows. We all experience it. But what I find that is very comforting from the scriptures is that Jesus gives us an open-ended invitation. And that open invitation to us is always, always to come. The only place in scripture where you will find Jesus saying, depart from me, is at the end when there are those who have finally rejected Jesus for the last time have no other opportunity to receive him. Other than that, his invitation to us is always, always to come. And so as long as there are burdens and anxieties and frustrations and problems and sicknesses and failures and sin in your life, you will always hear Jesus say to you, come. You can always come to me. In fact, he says in the Old Testament, I believe in the book of Isaiah, he says, come now and let us reason together. Who, who, who does that if they're God? Who does that if they're God? Who, who gives you a chance as mere mortals to come to him and, and, and reason with him? And he says this, come and let us reason together. Let us, let us talk things over. Because even if your sins are as red as crimson, they can be as white as snow. Come, Jesus says. As long as you're dealing with anxiety in your life, grief, sadness, sickness, sorrow or sin, you will always hear Jesus say, come to me and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Is there anyone here this morning that needs to bring this sorrow to Jesus? Is there anyone here this morning that needs to bring their failure to Jesus? Their anxiety, their sin, their mess up. There's no condemnation here, and you won't find any with Jesus. He will tell you, come. You have an open invitation, open-ended invitation to come to me. Let us pray together. God, I sense in my spirit this morning that there's somebody here that needs to come to Jesus. God, there is no condemnation with you, regardless of what we have done, regardless of what our situation is. We will always find a welcome in Jesus. And so this morning, God, while our heads are bowed before you and our eyes are closed. We come to you.
and we say, Lord Jesus, please deal with whatever situation in our lives has us anxious, perplexed, guilty, fearful. Let us receive your peace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. My second challenge to you this morning is related to the first. Trade your sorrows for the joy of the Lord. It's a trade. Sarah played a song this morning about this divine exchange. Where we can bring to Jesus whatever we have, give it to him, and in exchange receive what he has to offer. I'm just going to share a couple of lines from a a worship song we sometimes sing. I'll just share that and move on. It goes like this. I'm trading my sorrow. I'm trading my pain. I'm laying them down for the joy of the Lord. I'm trading my sickness. I'm trading my shame. I'm laying them down for the joy of the Lord. I want to ask you this morning to intentionally Participate in this divine exchange. Bring whatever it is that you have. Give it to Jesus. And receive from Jesus his peace, his grace, his forgiveness and love. Here's our final application point this morning. Give Jesus a report of your work in the gospel. Give Jesus a report of your work in the gospel. Nothing excites Jesus more, nor fills him with more joy, than a report of the work you are doing to further his kingdom. Nothing excites him more. The sad thing, however, is that some people can point to a single thing that they're doing to advance God's kingdom here. I want to ask you some very pointed questions this morning as I close. Is anybody's name written in heaven because of your work? Just ponder that question. Is anybody going to heaven as a result of the work that you have done? Is Satan's kingdom any weaker this morning because you have rescued a soul from hell? Are you doing anything today that is causing Jesus to rejoice over you? These are questions we must all ponder and answer. And I hope that you can answer yes to all of those questions. Let us pray together as we close. God, we rejoice over the fact that our, sin, that our names have been written in heaven. We rejoice over the fact that our sins have been forgiven. We have a hope that nothing in this life can destroy. But God, we also want you to be able to rejoice over the fact that your will is being done in us each day. That neighbors are coming to know Jesus because of our work that people at the office are turning to Jesus because of our work. 
the church is becoming stronger and heavens and, and hell's gates are becoming weaker because of our work. So God help us to intentionally give ourselves to your work and to be blessed by so doing. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.